This morning we're going to uh, continue our, our study through the Psalms of Hope. Psalms of Hope, we began last week in uh, Psalm 13. Our hope, sorry, last week, three weeks ago we began in Psalm 13. Our hope and lament, our ability to cry out to God in our hurts and our pains and to know that God hears us, to know that we can still trust Him. Um, we spent the last two weeks now in Psalm 23, most famous, familiar of all. Hope in God's care for us. He is our shepherd who provides for us, who leads us, who restores our souls. And this morning we're going to turn to another uh, pretty popular, really important Psalm 27. And we're going to find hope in God's protection for us. That's, that's sort of our big theme for this morning, as Scott already said, is uh, fear and what we, what we do where we turn in, in times of fear. And the big theme for this morning in Psalm 27 is in times of trouble, we don't have to fear because God will protect us. Okay, that's your, that's your big takeaway. In times of trouble, we don't have to fear because our God will protect us. I heard a, one pastor title this psalm, he called it a psalm for your calm. I kind of like that. Fear is considered by many psychologists to be the most powerful emotion there is. Fear is the strongest motivator of human behavior. We all complain about how we you know, hear nothing but bad news on TV and social media. Do you know why? It's because fear sells, right? Our local news station pays their bills with clicks and views, and guess what? You and I will not stay tuned in to Channel 5 to hear the heartwarming story about the couple that celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary. But if somebody breaks into their house and murders them, then we will stay glued to the TV. Fear sells. That's why we see far more negative ads than positive ones during this election cycle, right? Because they work. They work. Because what gets out the vote more than a politician you really believe in? It's not really any of those anyway, anymore anyway. It's, it's when you're convinced that America is literally going to crumble if the other guy gets elected. That will get the vote out. What's the most afraid you've ever been in your life? For me, when I was in high school, my friends and I used to think it was funny to drive around town late at night and throw water balloons at passing cars. Small town, uh, and I was a horrible person. You can pray for me. One night I was in the back of my uh, friend's pickup truck and I hit a car that immediately slammed on its brakes, pulled a U-turn in the middle of the road and chased us down within a matter of seconds. My friend tried to pull an abrupt turn into a nearby subdivision to, to try and lose them. In the process, he almost lost me out the back of the truck car stayed right on our bumper. We got to the end of the neighborhood only to realize it was a dead-end cul-de-sac. And so when my buddy went one way around the roundabout, the car went the other way, cut him off, put on the brakes, threw it in park. And two of the biggest guys I've ever seen in my life got out of the car with baseball bats and started charging at the truck. Right before deciding if you know, pee my pants, jump out the back of the car, try and run for it. My, my, my buddy had the wherewithal to throw it in reverse, 
back through uh, the person's uh, driveway, yard, speed off, and we eventually lost them. Now, as best I can tell, King David was not the water balloon throwing type. In fact, I think uh, what we see here in Psalm 27 is David's praying that God would protect him from the will of alls of the world, the teenage will of alls anyway, from evildoers who assail him. And what he offers us here really, I think, is God's blueprint for how we are to respond to the fears that will inevitably arise for all of us over the course of our lives. You know, biologists tell us that there are, you know, basically two instincts, two responses to fear. Do you remember them from high school biology? What are they? Fight or flight, right? Sometimes you hear a third freeze. We kind of forget about freeze because all the animals that freeze don't stick around too long. It's called natural selection, right? But fight, flight, or freeze. But the problem is they forget about a fourth option, the biblical option. And David's question, God's question for us here this morning is in the face of fear, will we choose fight, flight, freeze? Or will we choose faith? Faith. And David outlines what a fourfold response of faith looks like in the heart of a believer. So would you stand with me one more time for the reading of God's Word as you're able? From Psalm 27, we'll be reading from the ESV. I have the words on the screen in front of you uh, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we would love to bless you with the Bible. Please see the info bar. We'll give you one for free. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries or for false witnesses have risen against me. They breathe out violence. But I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for who you are and who you are for us this morning, God. Our light, our salvation, our stronghold. God, there are many reasons in our world today to be fearful and causes to be afraid and yet you comfort us this morning you protect us you give us the confidence the audacity to say whom shall i fear because of who you are god if there is anyone here this morning who does not know you to be their light their stronghold their salvation i pray that you might open the eyes of their heart this morning to behold you to gaze upon the beauty of the lord in your temple to see you for who you are and to see themselves for who they are in desperate need of your salvation god would you call a sinner to repentance and to new life this morning i pray this in jesus name amen you may be seated. So, what do we do when troubles and fears surround us? Four things, four responses David lays out here. Number one, first we proclaim God's promises. Proclaim God's promises. David declares, the Lord is my light and my salvation, the stronghold of my life, whom shall I fear? Now, for context, David knew a thing or two about troubles and fears. Like, you think you have gone through some stuff in your life? Why don't you try getting chased all over the desert by a demon-possessed king with an entire army at his disposal? Why don't you try squaring up against a literal nine-foot giant, against lions and bears as a prepubescent teenager? David lost a son in infancy. And then another son, Amnon, after he raped his half-sister Tamar and her brother Absalom found out about it and killed Amnon. And then Absalom just decided he'd steal the kingdom out from under David while he was at it. And so he exiled his own father. And the only way David was able to be reinstated as king was after his son Absalom had to die too. David knew about suffering. Don't think that just because he was a king, he didn't know pain. And as a Aside, don't think that just because your neighbors across the street have a big house and a nice car and the picture-perfect family on their Instagram feed, don't think that that means they don't know suffering. You don't know their pain. You don't know the, the pain they're trying to mask, right? You don't have to drive half an hour into North County. You don't have to drive 45 minutes to East St. Louis to be missional, to find people with deep needs that need to be met. Your neighbors in West County here may be just as needy spiritually as anyone. David knew suffering. He's not just reflecting back on some past time of trial here. He makes that clear in verses 6 and following when he says, and now my head shall be lifted up. Now, he says, this is a present trial. It's current. He's in the middle of it. He prays in verse 9, O you who have been, past tense, my help, cast me off, not now. Forsake me not now, present tense. But David begins in verse 1 by proclaiming God's promise.
promises by reminding himself in the midst of his present affliction that he need not fear because of who his God is. And who is his God? Three things. Three powerful descriptors he uses in verse 1. He says, number one, the Lord is my light. This is sub-point. Number one, Lord is my light. Listen, you, you find me the bravest person in this room right now, and if we put all the shades down, tape over the windows, cut the lights, it's pitch black all of a sudden, I can promise you pretty quickly you're going to start freaking out. Right? N- nothing else has changed. Still the same, like 60, 70 of us in the room. Right? No immediate threat of danger. We're probably mostly Christians, not looking to hurt each other. But your pulse will go through the roof. Why? It's because we are innately wired to be afraid of the dark. My four-year-old daughter, her nightlight went out the other night, in the middle of the night. And you think this is going to be a story about how afraid she was. She was scared, but she kept her cool pretty good until she came and woke me up. And I awoke to a a little shadowy figure hovering over my bed, whispering in my ear, and moments later, Polly awoke to the screams of some words that a pastor should never say. But I'm sure I was about two seconds away from punching my four-year-old daughter in the throat. That's fight or flight, right? You can't blame me. When you wake me up in the middle of my sleep. Now, on a more serious note, what is the most common metaphor that people who battle depression use to describe their feelings. I see it feels like a cloud of what? Darkness, right? Have you been there? The hero in literature, in the movies, if it's a good story at all, always has to go through what? Has to overcome what? The dark night of the soul, right? Even last week in Psalm 23, some translations say, even though I walked through the darkest valley. But then how did David finish that line last week? I walked through the darkest valley, but I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. God is my light in the darkness. This is the only passage in the Old Testament that calls God our light. In the New Testament, though, the Apostle John in his first letter, declares God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And then he goes on, John, in his gospel account, to say that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world in the person of Jesus. The Word made flesh, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, that means that no matter how dark your life gets, no matter how dark your own dark night of the soul seems, your darkest valleys, your seasons of intense depression, spiritual, emotional turmoil, that even in that darkness, if you have the light of Christ shining in your heart, God has promised you that the darkness will not overcome you. That's good news. That's good news. His light will not be extinguished. It is more powerful than the deepest darkness that this world can throw at you. Amen? Is Christ your light? That's that's the question for you this morning. Is He your light? Number two, second promise of who God is. David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Still in verse 1, now we need to recognize that the very idea here of calling God our salvation implies that we need to be saved from something. Right? That, that we need saving. We're in harm's way. David could not call God his salvation if he wasn't being assailed by evildoers in verse 2. If he wasn't being encamped against by an army in verse 3. Skip ahead to verse 5. David writes, He will hide me in the shelter in his day of trouble. Matt Chandler notes here that David did not say that you don't need a shelter because he'll stop the storm. No, a storm is coming. Chandler says, you and I should not be surprised when storms come. The Bible never says they're not coming. In fact, the Bible almost goes over the top to say they're coming. But what God has promised us is not that he would save us from the storm, but that he would protect us in the storm. Skip Heidsick similarly says, God has not promised to calm your every storm in life. He has promised to calm you through the storm. God doesn't promise to calm all of life's storms, friends. He doesn't, he doesn't promise to save your struggling marriage. He may not. He doesn't promise to save your dying business right now. He may not. He doesn't promise to cure your cancer, to heal you, to save your physical life. He may not. So how can God promise here in, ver in Psalm 27 to be our salvation? It's because in the most important sense of all, eternally, spiritually, God has already accomplished your salvation through the atoning death and the transforming resurrection of His Son Jesus in your place for you for the forgiveness of your sins and the restoration of your soul. That's the Gospel. That's way better news than healing from any sickness, than money in your bank account, whatever you think you need to be saved from right now. Listen, David's confidence in verse 3 Though war arise against me, wasn't in God's promise that he would win every battle. David fought a lot of battles in his life. He won some, he lost some. But David's confidence came from knowing that even if he lost the battle, he's already won the war because his God has already promised to stay with him even through life's darkest valleys. The valley of the shadow of death even. David knew that whenever death, his day, might come, death will come for us all, friends. The question is, will you be ready on that day? When your name is called, David knew that when his name was called, his shepherd was going to lead him through all the way to the other side. He knew Psalm 49.15, that God will ransom my soul from Sheol. He will receive me. That's why David can say with confidence, whom shall I fear? That's why the Apostle Paul can say with confidence, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, the, the technical answer to Paul's question is lots of people. Right? Like, if you stand for God, I mean, really stand for God. I'm not talking about posting Psalm 23 to your Facebook page, because everybody loves Psalm 23. But try posting the truth that we ended last week, last week's sermons with, that most folks take false comfort in Psalm 23 because Jesus isn't actually their shepherd, right? Try preaching that. Try confronting people in their sin. Try warning people that the vast majority of them are wicked sinners doomed for hell, and you better believe they will come against you 
armies will encamp against you. You will make plenty of new enemies, adversaries, foes. But David's point here in Psalm 27, Paul's point in Romans 8, isn't that folks won't come against you, but rather with God on your side, you just have nothing to fear. You don't have to be afraid of them. I mean, they can still kill you. Sure. Make no mistake. They killed Jesus for three days. They killed Peter and Paul, Andrew, James, Stephen, and almost all the disciples, but Jesus had already warned them, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you know who he's talking about? I'll give you a hint. It's not Satan. The only one with the power over souls, the only one with the power to send to heaven and hell is God himself. God is the one the only one worth fearing, friends. He's, he's the only thing in this life truly worth fearing. You want to talk about fear, the theme of our, of our morning. Fear the Lord. That's who you are to fear. The Bible commands it literally hundreds of times. I started trying to tally them this week, and I, I, I just had to stop. There's too many. Leviticus 19.14, fear your God. Deuteronomy 5.29, fear me and keep my commands. Joshua 4.24, fear the Lord your God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Hundreds, fear the Lord. God is the answer to David's question. Whom shall I fear? God. You, you better fear God. This is why when Peter and John were rounded up in Acts chapter 4, and, and they're for talking about Jesus, right? And they're, they're pulled before the Sanhedrin and they tell them to stop or they're going to kill him. How do they reply? They say, look, you guys got to do what you got to do, but I'm just telling you, uh, if the choice here is between fearing you, who can kill me temp temp temporarily, physically, you know, for a moment, death lasts for a moment, right? And then we enter into it. If it's between fearing you and fearing the living God, Disobeying you or disobeying the living God who has called me to go be his witness to all the, all the earth? I am way more scared of God, of disobeying him. You, kill me if you need to. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you live with that kind of confidence, friends? Can you? Do you have the audacity to say, I fear nothing? I am not afraid of the coronavirus because really the worst it can do is kill me and then I get to go be with Jesus in heaven. Like that's, that's worst case scenario. Jesus is my salvation. Subpoint number three. The third promise that we proclaim still in verse one, point number one in your bulletins, right? Verse one, I promise we're going to get to all four. We'll just go quick on the last ones. The Lord is my stronghold. He's my stronghold, my fortress, my tower. It's the place you would run in battle when the enemy's arrows start flying and you are put on the defensive. So I'm just going to cut straight to the takeaway on this one. Where do you run in times of trouble in your life? When your enemy, Satan, is flinging his fiery darts, where do you run? Do you reach for the remote? Do you reach for the phone? checkbook 
the bottle, to escape, to self-medicate, to numb? Or do we run to the Lord, to His Word? Do we run to Him in prayer? Is prayer your first response or your last resort? Do we recognize that we really do have an adversary? He really is far more dangerous, more powerful than you or I will ever be. He warns, uh, and God warns us, He wants to devour you, to ruin you. His darts are flying left and right. Do you know that you are tiny compared to Satan? But that Satan is tiny compared to God. Is he your stronghold? Is he your defense, your refuge? Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. But here is the kicker. We saw it last week with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, my shepherd. He has to be personal to you. Here again in Psalm 27, he's my light, my salvation, my stronghold. James Johnson explains one of the most important words in this whole chapter is my. It's a small word, two letters in English, one letter in Hebrew, but it makes all the difference. It is not enough to know that the Lord is light. Even the demons know this. You must be able to say the Lord is my light. It is not enough to know that God is a Savior, a stronghold. He must be your Savior, your stronghold. Many people who attend church know about God, but they do not know God. If Psalm 27 is going to be yours, you must be His. And so I ask you again this morning, friends, are you His? Is he yours? Is he your light, your salvation, your stronghold? He can be this morning. Trust in Jesus. Give your life to Jesus today and watch him fill it with more light, more salvation, protection, eternal protection than you ever dared hope for. He will do it. And then, when troubles come your way, number two, you pursue intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. David says, One thing have I asked for that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. Now, this seems like a pretty dramatic shift from verses 1 through 3, doesn't it? Like David started on the battlefield with all this militaristic language of armies and strongholds and enemies and war, and now all of a sudden we're standing in God's temple, gazing, entranced, infatuated with God's beauty. What's going on here? For starters, we need to, to note that God's temple in Jerusalem, literal temple, had not yet been built. David's son Solomon would do that years later. And so instead, God tells us in Isaiah 66, 1, he says, heaven is my throne, Revelation eleven nineteen. God's temple is in heaven. And so when David asked to dwell in the house of the Lord, to inquire in his temple, what's he talking about? He's talking about heaven, right? When he references hiding in the cover of God's tent in verse 5, he's alluding to the tent of meeting where Moses used to meet with God face to face like they were friends, the Bible says. David wants to experience that same manifest presence of God, true face to face intimacy, friendship, 
relationship with his heavenly Father. He wants it more than anything. He says in verse 4, it's the only thing, the one thing I'm asking of the Lord that I will seek. Remember what Solomon asked for? Do you remember when God gave Solomon one wish? What did he ask for? Wisdom. That's pretty good. That's a lot better than probably a lot of us would, would ask for. But David's request here is even better. David wants God himself. My intimacy with God. So, ask yourself this morning, what about me? Like if, if God gave me one wish, what would I want more than anything? You can be honest with yourself this morning. God already knows the secrets of your heart anyway. Do you want a new job? You want no job? You want to be able to retire already, comfortably? You want a vacation? Maybe a spouse for some of us? Maybe a new spouse for others of us, if we're honest. You want a child? You want a lost parent back? You want power, control, fame, status, influence, recognition, belonging, acceptance, forgiveness, security, comfort, health, wealth, happiness? What do you want? Do you want God? Do you want closeness with the Lord. Why does David beg for it here in the middle of a psalm about fear and protection? He says, I'm asking for intimacy with God, verse 5, for then he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. Therefore, he will do it. David says, yes, I want God for his own sake. Look, God is beautiful. He is worthy of being my one pursuit of my heart just for his own sake. But David is also wise enough to know that if you've got intimacy with God, then you've also got his hand of protection thrown in as a bonus as well. Right, like, if I'm in the house of the Lord, then I know I'm safe. I'm hidden on the day of trouble. I'm concealed in his tent, lifted upon the rock, high above my enemies. The image that came to mind for me this week was baby Simba. While Mufasa was still alive, right? Simba was untouchable. He didn't even have to stay in Mufasa's house. He disobeyed and he wandered off to the elephant graveyard, right? But his father loved him so much that he chased after him. And just before the hyenas had Simba for lunch, what happened? First, Simba tried to defend himself, right? His little kitty purr. Do you know that that's what you and I sound like when we try and defend ourselves in our own strength against our enemy? Satan is a 400-pound prowling lion. He's scar. He will rip you to shreds. The hyenas laugh in his face until his daddy shows up, right? <laughs> Don't fall asleep during my sermons. Now the hyenas aren't laughing anymore, right? You know where my daughter runs when she's afraid? to daddy's arms. Look, I'm not a big guy, but I will rip you limb from limb if you try and come against my daughter. 
That is why you want intimacy with the Lord in your day of trouble, friends. Yes, because a day with Him is better than thousands elsewhere, but also because when you're with Him, you are safe. You are untouchable. Maybe not physically, right? Can they still kill your body? Sure. But spiritually, eternally, you no longer have to fear because you know the One who holds all power over souls, over heaven and hell. He's your shepherd. He's your Father. And even, it bears mentioning, even when it comes to the physical stuff in life, like when you realize that God really is sovereign, that He alone is the one in the middle of the literal storms in life, the hurricanes of the world, who has the power to keep that giant tree in your front yard from coming uprooted and falling on your house and crushing your whole family in their sleep in the middle of the night, that ought to make us want to be close with Him. Like to stay in good, close relationship with that kind of a God who has that kind of a power, right? I'm not saying that we view God as just a means to an end. God isn't just some impersonal, cosmic, karmic force. He's a personal being. God has a mind, a heart, a will, but he has informed us clearly in his word that he actually allows for his will to be affected by our prayers. That's crazy. He doesn't promise to grant every single one of them, but he does at least factor them in. And so you better believe that I want to be as close as I can get to that God who has the power over life and death, spiritually and physically. That if a tree comes crashing down on my family, on my house in the middle of the night, it will not be because I failed to pray and seek his face and ask him for protection daily, every night, both physically and spiritually. You better believe I'm praying that. Pursue intimacy with him. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. You are my Lord. In you I take refuge. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because who is seated at God's right hand? Jesus. That's who Psalm 16 is about. That's who Psalm 63, Psalm 42, Psalm 27 for today. They're all about Jesus. He is the one seated at God's right hand. In his presence, there is fullness of joy forevermore. Because of Jesus, we can trust that God will not abandon our souls to Sheol, to hell, because we have no good apart from Jesus. Do you see what, what, what David says there? I have no good apart from you, from Jesus, from his righteousness. May we take refuge in Jesus, in his protection, in his salvation. May our whole beings rejoice forevermore. Amen? So when trouble comes, number three, we petition God for help. David cries out, 
in verses 7 through 12. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen against me. They breathe out violence. He begs God. He he, he implores God. He petitions God. And we've covered this already, especially in Psalm 13 from three weeks ago, and so I would encourage you to revisit that and our hope and lament in, in God's invitation to cry out to him, to trust that he cares, he listens and cares, but let me just try and summarize it for us here in a rather pointed and perhaps somewhat convicting personal question for you this morning. What does your prayer life say about who you believe God to be? What do your prayers, or lack thereof, say about who you believe God to be? Spurgeon said that a man's prayers say more about his faith than anything else in his life. More than his theology, not your church attendance, not how long your streak of reading the Bible every day in a row is, not how many verses you have memorized. I'm not saying those other things aren't important. I'm just saying that if you really believe that God is sovereign, like he's in charge, he is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases and you really believe that what he pleases to do is in some sense actually affected by your prayers. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, they prayed for stuff and God listened and supernaturally intervened and altered the course of human history to accommodate. Jesus says, even if you who then are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who what? Ask him. So my question to you this morning is, are you asking him? Like if you, if you still don't have, don't get it, at least let it not be because you didn't ask. Yes, we recognize that oftentimes we don't know what's good for us. God knows what's good for us. He has promised to work all things together for good for us in spite of us, in spite of our prayers to the contrary. Sometimes we pray for things that God knows we don't need and he won't give them to you. But he still calls you to pray boldly, approach his throne boldly and ask. Do we do it? Do we petition him in our help, for help in our day of trouble? Is prayer our first response or our last resort? And if we don't pray, is it because we don't think that he's really in control? Or we don't think that he really listens? We don't think that he really wants what's best for us? Or is it just because we don't think we really need him? Because we're still Simba, trying in our own strength. Meanwhile, Satan is eating your lunch. He's getting ready to devour you. Cry out to God. Seek his face. Finally, number four, proclaim God's promises. Proclaim God's promises. 
pursue intimacy with God. Sorry, we're recapping. Number one, proclaim his promises. Number two, pursue intimacy with God. Number three, petition him for help. And lastly, number four, typo on on your slides there, number four, preach God's truth to your soul. Preach God's truth to your soul. David bookends his pursuit and petitions of God by proclaiming on the one hand and preaching to himself on the back end. That's what he's doing here. He's preaching to himself the truth of who God is, of who God has already promised to be for him. Verse 10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. This is one of the most beautiful promises of God in all of Scripture. This first changed my life when I was in middle school, when after years of hating God, of resenting Him, of blaming God for my father leaving my family, I finally realized, wait a minute, God didn't forsake me. God hasn't rejected me. God didn't abandon me. Earthly parents might. Earthly parents are sinful and selfish and stupid. You hear that, kids? There's a sermon for you. Even the best of us, trying our hardest, will inevitably let you down, kids. You know who won't? God's promise to you is that even when those closest to you, even your parents, even your spouses, even your best, closest, intimate friends who you trusted inevitably let you down, stab you in the back, and leave you, God's promise is to take you in. He says, I will accept you. I will never abandon you. Especially not in your day of trouble. What kind of father would leave you when you need him most? I'll tell you who won't. Your heavenly father. So you can say with confidence along with David that even in the midst of your trials, verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's the land of the eternally living. He's talking about heaven again because God has not abandoned my soul to Sheol. He has redeemed me through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross in my place. He's written my name in the Lamb's book of life. I am His. He is mine. And I will look upon His goodness one day face to face in heaven. Can you say that? Is that your story this morning? When troubles come, friends, where will you turn? Where will you go? We all know the saying, right? When the going gets tough, what? The tough get going. My question is, get going where? Where do they get going? I don't know about the tough, but I know about the wise. The wise get going to God. They turn to Jesus, to his house, to his temple. How about you? How will you respond in the face of fear this morning? Fight, flight, freeze, or faith? Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage.
wait for the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.